because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week is a, a special edition of Power Hour. I guess they're all special in their own way, uh, but this one is going to have, I think, the most participants we've ever had on a Power Hour because um, on, this, on this episode, we are going to have the members of the Light Brigade, which is the organization that went to Washington, D.C. last week to have a counter-protest, or more accurately, a counter-education to the so-called Forward on Climate rally. Uh, now, just to give you a bit of a backstory, um, I heard about I had heard about this rally for a while, but about three weeks ago, maybe a little longer, uh, I saw that there wasn't much of a counter protest or a counter anything. And this this was very odd to me because this was billed this was intended to be the largest climate rally in history, and that claim had a certain amount of credibility because the organizers of uh, of the event included Bill McKibben. Uh, whom many listeners of the show are uh, familiar with, perhaps too familiar with, uh, but also the uh, Sierra Club. And these are very, very big players. And in uh, years past, they had really played a role in getting President Obama to prevent the Keystone XL pipeline from moving forward. And here again, they were making that a central issue. No, no pipeline, no XL, as many of their signs uh, went. And basically, I just was upset by the fact that this was going on and that there wasn't much opposition. And I didn't exactly know why that was, but uh, as I've said a couple times, I feel like when, you know, when our values are attacked, when industrial civilization is attacked, and this often takes the form of the fossil fuel industry being attacked, I feel like it's the bat signal for CIP. So. I decided, okay, well, let's, you know, let's do something. And uh, what I settled on was to do something like we did for Occupy Wall Street several years ago, which is to not hold signs, not try to out-yell them, but rather to try to educate the people or at least engage the people and talk to them and you know, occasionally get in arguments with them and let the public see what the different views amount to and whose views uh, stack up and how well they stack up. So, of course, I wanted to bring uh, Eric Dennis because he and I had had a lot of fun at Occupy Wall Street a couple of years ago. And then uh, a couple more people decided to join on, um, Thomas Iden uh, and Aaron Connors, both of whom are uh, engineers at Wisconsin, and then uh, Travis Fisher, who's an economist in DC. So the, uh, and then a friend of mine and a videographer, Jimmy Patterson from Connecticut, said he wanted to come and video it all, and he had his really, he's really good at that kind of thing. So there's kind of the six of us were uh, the core of the Light Brigade, and I should say also the, the, the backup was my friend Ann Cunningham, who hosted many of us for the whole trip during D.C. and, and, and many late nights. But what we're going to do today is tell you a little bit about it, and I'm bringing on uh, the different people. So we're going to talk about why they felt like coming uh, and then their their different experiences. So let's start with Eric. Eric, why did you come down to DC? So I had flown across the country. Uh, others had come from Wisconsin. You came down from New York. Why did you want to be part of this? Uh, well, like you mentioned, we had had some fun before talking to the Occupy Wall Street people, and I just think it's interesting to get a gauge on what the actual people 
who constitute these demonstrations, what's actually going through their minds and to what extent they understand uh, what they're protesting for and what they're protesting against. Um, so I, you know, I enjoy the intellectual exchanges uh, to the extent that that occurs um, and was just curious more than anything um, and wanted to get a sense of, of the, what the, uh, kind of the troops on the ground uh, what their ideas are and how they contrast, and specifically how much they know uh, about the actual science and the, the issues involved uh, as opposed to the, the leadership. So what, what was your impression of that? Uh, well, I guess my first impression was that um, not even in terms of knowledge, but just in terms of energy level, um, it was kind of a drab affair. Uh, I was thinking about it. The, the individual on their side who showed the most enthusiasm was actually our stalker, the, <laughs> the, um, who, was, who was a fellow, I guess, allied with one of these organizations who was following us around and following you, Alex, around specifically, and very urgently trying to inform anyone who we would talk to that our goal was to make them look like idiots, which was not really the case. I mean, our goal was to actually engage in an exchange uh, and to have, to have it known and, and recorded what the actual motivation uh, for the protesters was. But he, he by far showed the most enthusiasm and energy and purposiveness in, in getting something done as opposed to the, the kind of crowd that was just milling around, kind of, you know, munching on grass occasionally. Um, <laughs> Um, well, and I, I should say that, that his, I mean, it is true that people often do not end up looking very good on those videos, not because we're chopping them up unfairly, but because when certain arguments are presented to them, they might not, they might not have an answer. Or they might just initiate themselves something that, that is not a very good thing to say and is often not said articulately or um, seemingly intelligently. And, but that, that is, I mean, I'll admit that, that um, I mean, I would have been shocked had it been a, an overwhelmingly sophisticated, thoughtful audience who really, you know, who, who could take in a point and, and who would be interested in, well, here's a physicist who thinks a little bit differently, or here's an energy expert who has something new to say to me about who gave me a good explanation of the problems with solar and wind. I, I mean, I found that very... Uh, Lacking. Now, as far as the, the stalker, whom I later nicknamed Waldo, because when I was looking through the footage, this guy is just in all the footage. So it's like one of those Where's Waldo books, except he's a lot easier to find, unfortunately. Uh, and Waldo is, he, part of it was that he was talking about how we were going to embarrass them, but it was really, the, he handed out a sheet which was intended to embarrass us. And there's one thing about, uh, Mark Morano, who was there with CFACT, uh, and we won't go into that. I mean, Mark can, can defend himself insofar as he cares, so I doubt he cares to. Uh, was interesting was the things about me and about Eric, because this, this was supposed to be a warning, you know, warning to not listen to us. And it, and it, it described us as climate science uh, deniers, which is kind of bizarre term because it's saying we're deny I don't know what it means to deny a whole field of inquiry unless we unless there's some contrast to the climate that I don't know about that we don't believe in a science of climate and I mean we're both on the record as being very big advocates of being very specific 
uh, uh, and nuanced about these issues. So when someone says you know, global warming is real, we point out that that is a very that is an empty statement that could have any number of interpretations, and that we agree with at least one of those interpretations. But that that interpretation in no way that it's you know it's a mild phenomenon that. Uh, hasn't affected much, and that the thing that is tied to that phenomenon, in part the combustion of fossil fuels, is, a, is an unbelievably positive and life and death uh, phenomenon. So this, that they're insisting on this characterization, I think shows shows the, the weakness of their position and also the uh, bullying nature of the position, which is to try to say that, well, they're in favor of this thing that no one can deny because it's so vague and that, that we're just deniers. So it really is intimidation. And I think um, all of the actions by this guy and the other members of 350.org or the other supporters were meant to intimidate. And you can, you can watch on youtube.com slash improve the planet. Uh, there's a whole sequence with me the night before where people are, are literally just doing everything they can imagine, I mean, short of hitting me to intimidate me. They're playing loud music. They're coming up behind me. They're talking super close to my, to my face. Um, you know, and this is just really, uh, really childish. I mean, fortunately, I was very prepared because I know the level of childishness that gets uh, exhibited, and I also know what it's going to look like on the camera for them once it gets recorded, but it was still that. So that's one aspect, just this idea of intimidating through terminology and through physical proximity. And even for Waldo to come into all the camera shots is ridiculous. I mean, if someone is just shooting something, you can't just, I mean, you, you can legally, but just to, to insert yourself in every single shot, I mean, that's almost like me running up on the stage while McKibben is talking. You're like, hey, I debated this guy. He didn't answer my point. Like, well, you don't, can't really do that. Uh, so there was this whole, but, but Eric's point that this guy, that that was the real motivation um, was noteworthy. So the intimidation was motivating. And then with the specific criticisms, it was interesting because the criticism of me was that my former employer, um, which was one and a half years ago, the Ayn Rand Institute, once had received some unspecified amount of money from the Koch Foundation. I have, was not involved in that at all. I have no idea what that is. I can certainly tell you no one at the Ayn Rand Institute uh, ever told me anything remotely to influence what I said based on Coke or anyone else. And in fact, I mean, I, had, I was the one who chose to write about energy. It's not like Charles Koch said, hey, Ayn Rand Institute, let's focus on energy. Here's some money. If they had, I don't think that would be a particular problem. Obviously, at Ayn Rand Institute, that is a, was a big value there. I mean, the energy that, that moves the world. But the fact that the association with Coke would be considered so damning and such a source of motivation, even in this bizarre, disconnected way, when all the Cokes do is give money to pro-liberty organizations and, and then they refine oil, it just shows how, how these guys see this issue in a religious way. And either you're an infidel uh, who likes fossil fuels and is somehow associated with them, and then the press should be warned about them and you're obligated to stop them, or you're on the side of, quote, climate science. And sure, you might want to shut down all the industrial civilization, but, you know, but you're a bad person. So I'm curious, Eric, uh, what, what you thought about Waldo's enthusiasm and, and the source of it. Yeah, well, so one thing is that the 
uh, it's kind of their standard go-to tactic, this formula about finding some uh, barely tenable link between you and some large uh, you know, pro-free market or, or, or right-wing uh, philanthropist or donator. Um, it's, it's, really, it, it's really a sign of intellectual laziness, first of all, because it's, that's probably the easiest thing to do to try and generate some, uh, some such connection rather than to actually ask, well, what do these guys actually think? What are their arguments? Um, how, how could I possibly approach these arguments and, and refute them? Um, another aspect of the whole thing is uh, um, something, uh, something that I noticed, which is that there's a tendency to get the causation really backwards on why a lot of people think the way they do. And certainly in this case, it's, <coughs> it's utterly implausible that, uh, that you really believe that there's a climate catastrophe coming. Um, like if the, your sober opinion is like that that's an actual possibility, um, and yet you're somehow you've been, you've been flipped by the evil Coke money, and now because you're on their payroll, you, even though you know that there's a real threat to the quote-unquote climate, you're, you're subverting your own views in order to um, garner all this income from the Cokes, which is, which is utterly silly. I mean, obviously, um, obviously, the causation is that you have a certain set of beliefs, those, and I have a certain set of beliefs and, and really convictions based on the evidence, based on our own reasoning. And as a result of that, there are certain uh, funding organizations that naturally uh, you know, are, uh, share those, those convictions, and they're the ones to fund you. So it's kind of just a silly argument on its face. Um, but it, it, like I said, it's, it's, it's really an indication that there is no real intellectual opposition, um, or at least there's no, uh, on the part of these organizations, there's no concerted effort to figure out what these guys, i.e. us, are advocating and why we're wrong. It's just, it's just kind of a, <laughs> a, uh, a, a lazy kind of hit job, I would characterize it, as, a, as opposed to an attempt to engage. Yeah, one, the, the first one was this idea of, of the Coke connection. The second one, which I found uh, just as objectionable, though it, it might have more surface plausibility, was the discussion of Eric, because I, I bring Eric a lot on, uh, on the show a lot to discuss uh, these issues of climate science and, and a lot of things underlying that, how to think about it, uh, you know, what the evidence says, what it, what it doesn't. And I'll just say the reason I bring him on is I remember, you know, actually the first time I became familiar with Eric is he, I didn't even know who he was, or I don't even know if I knew that he had a physics PhD, but I read something by him on the internet that I thought was exceptionally well-reasoned and put together a bunch of things that hadn't occurred to me, particularly it was just a point about the nature uh, of modeling and what happens when you're trying to, when you're trying to model a system of, of a sophistication that, that is not possible at a given time and how that distorts things. In any case, this is how you, you, know, you judge people by, they give you evidence, they give you reasoning, and who's good at that? And then later I found out, okay, well, he's a physicist, 
and he has expertise in mathematical modeling, uh, primarily practiced in the uh, financial markets, but that has but modeling complex system in general systems in general has uh, you know commonalities of whatever the system you're modeling, and that made sense. But it was ultimately that I thought he had a perspective that made more sense of the issue than just about anyone I had talked to. So my own independent reasoning was this person has a really good way of thinking about these issues, and thus I want to learn from him and have him help me integrate the other things that I read. But you know, when we're talking to Waldo and, and this document, the issue was, well, he hadn't published anything in climate science. And this was, this was such a big, and then Waldo said, you know, are, isn't this misleading? Like, aren't you misleading people by, by having an opinion on this and by saying that you're a scientist when in fact you're not a quote-unquote uh, climate scientist? And, well, Eric, I'll let you, I have some things to say about that, but I'll, I'll let you respond to that. Well, right. This is a convenient technique, because, especially uh, given the insularity of the so-called climate science uh, kind of research program and, and the set of people who actually are building these climate models. You know, 20 years ago, this field uh, virtually didn't exist. Um, so the uh, say 25 years ago, it was a tiny, tiny little field. I mean, the fraction of scientists who have the relevant expertise to kind of assess this stuff that were actually in the kind of on the battleground of attempting to build a global climate model, tiny, tiny fraction of them were the ones who were actually trying to, to <laughs> build such a model. Um, and I, I think it's extremely important, especially when the, it's really the entire research program uh, at its root and, and our, uh, whether or not we have the ability right now to uh, even formulate the main causal factors um, uh, in their totality that will ultimately control the climate over a 100-year time span. We simply don't. And when, uh, when a lot of scientists from outside of this small domain want to question the, the foundations of this domain, it, it's a really thin charge to, to level against them that, hey, you're not part of the guys who are taking this task on and actually doing it. Well, there's a one among many reasons for that. One is that we just don't believe there's enough sophistication right now in our understanding of the climate to even begin on the task. So why would we, why would we pursue the task in the first place? Um, uh, and, and it is a technique that uh, I think is used a lot by the so-called climate scientists themselves. It's, uh, it's been used against um, a, a, an individual that I, I actually view as if there's anyone right now who's a legitimate climate scientist, it would be, for instance, Steve McIntyre, who's the guy who exposed the, uh, the uh, Michael Mann's um, hockey stick uh, fraud, the kind of the, <laughs> the um, completely bogus attempt to reconstruct uh, historical temperatures. The man who exposed the, the errors that, uh, that were involved in, in man's uh, temperature reconstruction model, that is an example of an actual scientist. Now, it's the guy who himself 
is really as for of a pure math background, a statistics background, but the, the, the task of reconstructing past temperatures is itself primarily a statistical task. It's a task of taking a huge range of statistical data and integrating it together with novel statistical methods. It's not primarily a task that requires um, super detailed knowledge of the, uh, you know, the, the physics of ice cores or the biology of tree rings, although, frankly, I, I think um, Steve McIntyre's knowledge of those things probably rivals that of, of his opponents. But the point is that it's someone from outside of what, what you would normally construe as the climate science discipline, someone from outside coming in and subjecting the really quirky methodology that is um, just not questioned within this discipline, um, subjecting that methodology to kind of the, the standards of what I'd say, what I call normal science, the science that's practiced um, on, in, in disciplines which are not as politically charged and, and which are, uh, I would say, more rational in, in their standards and their kind of the accepted practices. Um, so it, it's, it's critical whenever you have a hugely ambitious project like projecting global climate 100 years into the future that you get criticism from outside the little insular discipline which has been erected in order to solve this particular problem and which is subject to very specific uh, incentive uh, problems associated with the funding sources and, and how um, coming up with certain results will get you more funding and coming up with opposing results will decrease your funding. So especially when you have that incentive problem um, and you also have epistemic problems within the discipline, it's, it's essential to, uh, you know, get people from outside uh, that uh, specific subdomain of research to, to have input, and, and that's kind of where I'm coming from. Someone with a, uh, a general knowledge of physics, with a lot of experience in mathematical modeling, someone who knows uh, what the real problems are in general when you try to model complex systems and what the, what the validation processes are that are necessary once you've built a model in order to figure out whether it has any connection whatsoever to reality. Um, that's the kind of expertise that needs to be uh, that needs to be utilized in assessing from uh, from outside of the box. Let's say what's going on with these climate models. All right, Eric. I have one more question on this scientific uh, attack on quote climate science deniers. Uh, I find it. I mean, I remember um, in the discussion with Waldo, he said something that, that stuck with me about, well, I'm sort of forgetting it now, so maybe it didn't stick with me enough. But, oh yeah, it was about, he was talking to you, and at one point I made the fair, I think both of us made the fairly obvious point that this young man uh, had no specific scientific knowledge whatsoever. I mean, certainly not anywhere near uh, your training, and I'm guessing even less training than I have. And yet he was hanging his hat on the fact that, well, I'm not going to, oppose the quote-unquote climate science community, like how would you, you know, how would you, how could you do that? And I was thinking, well, I mean, what, it's just such a crazy statement. I mean, first of all, I don't know what, even what that is or 
obviously there are many people with many different views, but any statement, I'm going to just ask someone for the evidence and uh, ask, see how good his argument is. I mean, how else am I supposed to? How else am I supposed to know? And we have so many examples in history where, following Waldo's policy, I mean, Waldo would have been a Nazi, literally. I mean, following a lot of the, the eugenicists and the eugenics consensus, certainly in Germany, if he had been born there. Um, I mean, in terms yeah. of forced uh, sterilization, it just yeah. So comment on that. And, and frankly, I mean, I, I can see cases where there are individuals who just aren't particularly interested in this, who could reasonably, from what they've heard in the media, uh, come to the conclusion that there is some kind of scientific consensus. And I, I could, un I could, it would be understandable to me how perfectly reasonable people who didn't really have much experience here would fall back on something like that, and I wouldn't blame them too much. In his case, I, I, it's a totally different story, because this is clearly something that is a uh, significant part of his life that he's he's spending a lot of energy and attention on. And his invocation of quote-unquote consensus in uh, this really kind of know-nothing way of that's just what they said. There, there was some big court case and the verdict came down and the, the judge named the consensus and the consensus was that, you know, the catastrophic climate change is real and it's going to happen and, and, you know, the sky is falling. I mean, in his, in his case, where he's actually, this is, this is really important to him, he needs to not merely have these platitudes, you know, ready in his back pocket uh, in order to be, you know, give some kind of rhetorical response to the question of how do you know. He needs to actually have some kind of map or high-level diagram of what, <laughs> what the science is actually trying to do, what the kind of a general outline of what the evidence is, what the dissenting views are. It's essential that it's, it's obvious that there are dissenting views. I mean, it's, it's a highly controversial issue. Even if you don't, if you're not really fully exposed to it, you see reports of dissenting scientific views in the media as well. And he, I'm sure, has heard of these things, but he didn't really seem familiar with any of the details. For, for instance, on the, 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 the hockey stick uh, example, I was, I was engaging him a little and trying to talk about it, and the only thing I, I was kind of describing the history of it and what the actual scientific question was, what the difficulty in reconstruction, reconstructing past temperatures was, and I referred to um, the, the, the uh, kind of summary conclusion of this Senate panel that was chaired by a world-renowned statistician named Edward Wegman. And instead of making any substantive comment about the scientific issues, he, he threw out something about how, Wegman, how Wegman's graduate student had been wrapped up in some kind of um, minor kind of uh, plagiarism case where he, he copied a few lines from a textbook in a paper he wrote um, in, in one, of the, one of the papers, I think, submitted by the panel that is a complete red herring that has nothing to do with the scientific issues involved and is some kind of talking point that someone had told him in order, whenever you hear uh, reference made to this Senate panel and this guy Wegman, this is what you pull out of your pocket. So it's just his lack of interest in the actual issues, the, the actual scientific evidence um, for whether or not past temperatures have been considerably higher than they are now, um, or whether it's just been 
kind of a flat line for the last thousand years until just recently when industrial civilization started to put out a lot of carbon dioxide. His lack of interest in that is what really struck me. Yeah, there was also the phenomenon, and I'm going to bring in our other guests in a second, uh, of this, there's a certain point that I think is a, a really effective uh, point about the overall state of things, which is the statistic we call climate danger or climate-related deaths. And they're telling people, look, this is, this is a fairly straightforward statistic. This is exactly what you would want, especially as a layman, to get a sense of what kind of threat are we dealing with. You wouldn't just want to hear, oh, there was a drought in India. You would want to know, because you know that there are uh, so many weather events, you can always pick positive or negative. So you would want to know the aggregate, and you'd particularly want to know the aggregate on human life. And when I pointed out that since major, major emissions, since CO2 emissions really started ramping up you know, 80 or so years ago, we have a 98% decline in climate-related deaths and climate danger. And I was just struck by it. Many people were, I mean, most people were completely unfamiliar with this statistic, including this guy, Steve Kretzman, who was uh, who's head of what's called Oil Change International and is uh, very positively regarded in, uh, you know, by Bill McKibben and that community. He had no interest in this at all. I mean, he just, it, the, the video should come out today, this is Sunday or tomorrow. He was just kind of guffawing at it, but he never had an answer to it, nor, nor did McKibben. And what struck me is, shouldn't you be excited if it turns out that, I mean, shouldn't you at least be, look into it, even if, if there's, even if there's a 75% chance I'm just making it up, that would be an exciting development for the things to get better. And yet there was no interest whatsoever in something, in anything positive in the world being connected to fossil fuels. Did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think clearly, you, you know, standing kind of back from the situation and looking at it, uh, it is unfortunate when you see this complete lack of interest in counter evidence to their apocalyptic scenarios, but it's, it's kind of what you'd expect. I mean, the, the psychology of the professional protester um, or the, the kind of environmentalist activist, it's, it's not terribly surprising. It's, it's a movement. Uh, it's a movement in the same way that communism was or that uh, certain kinds of religious fanaticism is. And the, you, can, you can see the signs of this in individuals there. Their, uh, their sense of self is really wrapped up in this movement. And they don't view these questions as factual questions, as scientific questions about what is the actual danger. Um, when you bring up a fact that might lead one to be suspicious of certain claims, it's viewed as simply an attack. It's not viewed as... Uh, as an attempt to, to really gain insight into a, 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 you know, a complex technical scientific problem. So uh, while it is disappointing, it's, it's not at all surprising. Yeah, I guess as a personal comment, uh, I found that I found the overall uh, ambience of the place more difficult to take emotionally than I had expected. Like I found it much, much more objectionable to occupy Wall Street, at least when we were there, because when we were there, it wasn't hugely inhabited. They weren't 
demonstrate. There's a bunch of people with signs sitting down. You kind of approach them. But here was this combination of absolutely zero interest in what we had to say, uh, hostility toward it, but then actually taking action in the moment to you know, take away our oil, to ultimately undermine our civilization. And, uh, yeah, just, I, found it, I found it very uh, off-putting in a way where it was, I found it difficult to, to not be uh, somewhat angry with them in the moment. And, and uh, I'll just admit that because it was, I mean, I experienced it the most directly I ever have at one of these events because it's literally, wow, this, it's a completely unthinking mob and they're demanding something with complete righteousness and what that would do is horrible. And then the ultimate thing they want to do is horrible and they don't, they don't care at all. And all they seem to care about is, you know, the destruction that would happen, but, but in particular just defending their membership in this movement. And I think that's what Eric is getting to getting at with the talk of the movement. And, with that, I want to bring on um, another guest or, or invite another guest to talk since we've been talking for a while. Uh, Thomas Iden, who's a grad student and nuclear engineer at University of Wisconsin. Tom, why did you come, especially since many people might think, oh, you're a nuclear guy. Why well, come defend uh, fossil fuels? So I was really uh, interested in some of the protesters there because there were many that were uh, had anti-nuclear signs as well. It was not just no Keystone. It was there was no more nukes and other technologies. But my interest was a lot of the focus was is this fixation on carbon dioxide. But many of the, many of these um, anti-nuclear protesters. The, the, I mean, nuclear plants don't emit carbon dioxide. So I'm trying, I wanted to figure out why are these people against nuclear at an anti-carbon rally, and, and why are they, for one of the most, one of the safest forms of energy production there is, why are they against this, and why, why, why this such a vehement um, opposition to this technology? So what was your overall impression of the protesters? Uh, you, were, you were going around all day with a camera on you, and you took a lot of footage, and you had a lot of interaction. Did you have any general impressions? So there were some people that were, at, when I started talking to them, were, once, they, uh, once I told them I was a nuclear engineer, they were genuinely interested in learning more. I, I say that this, is, this was a rare exception, um, but the majority of the other people I talked to, a lot of the things that they spouted as fact or a lot of the claims they made were just so wildly untrue. And so we got into discussing some of these claims, and at some point I would mention, you know, I'm a nuclear engineer. I've studied these issues for well over four years now, and that simply isn't true. And... It, what was interesting then is all of a sudden they're up against some, or I think I'm quite knowledgeable on these topics, and once they realize, oh, here's someone who has real facts, they resorted to trying to derail the conversation. So, for instance, uh, one of the people I was talking to resorted to, oh, you're, you're still a kid, you're only in your 20s, you don't, you don't really understand what's going on. 
And I was just like, are you Wait, wait, was he, a, was he a seasoned nuclear engineer himself? No, he was not. To my understanding... So he, by studying no nuclear engineering over the years, he's become more knowledgeable than someone who has? Apparently. Well, and this was after he had said that a lot of people in the nuclear industry ran nuclear plants irresponsibly. So the older, the older uh, experienced people who have been doing this for 30 years are in general irresponsible. So I asked, does that mean I'm irresponsible? He said, no, and then eventually down the line, then all of a sudden now, because I'm younger, I don't know anything. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. What other, what other uh, tactics did they resort to? Um, besides the tactic for looking at age, one of the things that was commonly brought up was, you know, little Fukushima. And so my response would be, well, just how many people died as a result of the nuclear plant as opposed to the huge natural disaster? And they never really had a good answer. They could never give me even like a number or any, some sort, any sort of statistic or fact. And I would say zero. And I distinctly remember there was a guy from the Sierra Club holding on, on one of the ends of a huge banner. And he said, well, we, we won't be able to know because with stuff like this, the cancers develop and we just won't be able to determine it from background death from background um, noise. And my first thought, and I told him, I was like, well, doesn't that show how safe it is where we, cannot, we can barely even determine death from, say, an accident like this from the actual natural background death? That means it's really safe. And he really didn't have anything to say to that and then resorted to trying to get it off topic with some other thing that he, would, he just came up with, arbitrarily came up with and try to derail the conversation. This is one thing that I think we should just take note of as people interested in knowledge, that in conversations, it's incredibly inappropriate if someone else makes a good point that you don't have an answer to, to change the subject. I mean, it, it's, I, I, mean I really like sequence. So if someone, if someone just, if we're talking about Fukushima, and then I establish that, look, this is actually a testament to how dangerous Mother Nature can be, but how safe man-made things such as nuclear power plants can be. Like, we, we want to come to a conclusion on that. And they should be able to say to the camera, look, I'm sorry I impugned nuclear power because of Fukushima. Or at the very least, you seem like you have a good point. I'll go look into it. But it's, it's striking how rarely that happens because they're in a tribe. They're fighting a war. They're not trying to get educated. I mean, and the, their whole movement has told them, look, there's no education necessary. Science, with a capital S, has spoken, and all you need to do is carry out orders. So these people who are bringing up these arguments, the, those, are just, those, are, those are just deceivers. Those are just guys getting in the way. And, of course, any decent part of them wants to have some argument against you, but if they don't, they'll just move on and on and on. And, and part of the way the issue is framed is because no one ever mentions the benefits uh, of fossil fuels or the context that everything has safety challenges. They just have this laundry list of negative things that if you counter one of them, they can, uh, you know, they can trot out another. And if you give the broader context of how beneficial this is, they'll just say, 
you know, arbitrarily, oh, we can just replace that with solar and wind. They've got this, this, these stock answers for everything, um, but it, it all amounts to just a completely warped and evidenceless view of the world and just a striking lack of interest in understanding the issues and, and particularly disturbing a striking lack of hope or interest in things getting better. Like that's, that's almost the worst thing. And speaking of the benefits of fossil fuels, let's bring on uh, Aaron Collins. also came from uh, Wisconsin. Aaron, you're, uh, you've worked in oil refineries and you're a mechanical engineer. Uh, why did you want to come to Light Brigade? I think that what was most interesting to me at least is that these um, individuals or so-called environmentalists who go to these rallies, not only are they directly telling me that what I do is um, morally wrong and like not, it's not something that they're interested in, but not only that, but it's just that they're actively trying to um, take away what I would like to do with my future. So that was like my number one interest in going is just seeing individuals like this and I've never been able to put faces to the type of people who are like this. So I thought that was a very interesting experience. Well, that, that's a bit of a surprising statement given that you, you're at University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is a, a supposedly very green campus. What's, what's the difference between the average green student at University of Wisconsin versus the kinds of people we ran into at what we call the blackout rally? I think that your average um, green student, as like especially at Wisconsin, would like to you know bring a recyclable bag to the grocery store and recycle plastic bottles. But really beyond that doesn't take um, a much larger interest in the environmental movement, whereas many of these individual, individuals at the rally were very um, heavily invested and you know, took the time out of their days to travel to this rally and um, to tell me, like, to, like personally, to tell me exactly what I, what, what I was doing incorrectly. So, so do you have any, uh, what were some of your memorable experiences? I think that what I, um, like I've definitely, I've never been to a rally of this size or really any rally um, like this. So what I thought was most shocking was just what people were willing to admit to that they personally believed. Um, I guess I was speaking with one individual who, you know, he was like, I was making the point that he obviously used fossil fuels to get to the rally. And he was like, yeah, well, you know, and I was like, and then, you know, the conversation went on. And by the end of the conversation, he was ready to give up flying by airplane for the rest of his life. He just was not interested in it, didn't need it ever again. And I just thought, why would you ever give up something that lets you travel by air, um, which is not, not something everyone has access to. So I thought that was shocking. And also just, I was also surprised at um, how many people when they did find out that I worked in the um, oil industry, immediately just started asking me who was sending me to this rally and what was I doing here and, you know, who did I, like, who did I work for? And I was like, that is, I just, I personally thought it was besides the point because in my view, um, no matter which oil company I worked for, I would feel the exact same way about the industry as a whole. But they just completely did not want to engage on anything I was saying and instead wanted to, look at my, I, I don't know, I guess what they thought were more personal motives and things that would just be, I, I thought were irrelevant. Yeah, that's, 
that goes to what Eric and I were talking about earlier with just how how they tend to go for the easiest possible thing, which is to write off your entire position by ascribing some simpleton motive that really doesn't make any sense. I mean, why go into the oil industry? Is that like the idea that, well, if, if you're going into the oil industry, you have a certain skill set that's not exactly that easy to come by that requires a lot of hard work. So why go into it? And then, you know, even if, let's say, you can make $20,000 a year more in the oil industry in there, no one in the oil industry wants to see the world come to an end. I mean, no one wants – there's this um, really uh, viciously or even wickedly titled movie called Exxon Hates Your Children, and that's, that's exactly encapsulates this bizarre view that there are just some people in the world who just refuse to see uh, the truth, uh, but in this, like, direct, uh, I want to kill everyone else way. Now, if you, were, if you had to – if that view existed and you had to ascribe it to someone, it would certainly be the modern environmentalist movement. I mean, in terms of its just rampant pursuit uh, of, of destruction. But even there, uh, for the vast majority, it's not that they're just directly lusting after the, the death of all the people that their policies would kill, although, of course, we hold them responsible. So even if you met someone from Exxon, and Exxon really was on the, the wrong side of things, you would want to you really want to try to convince them. You'd understand they have a certain argument, they have a certain uh, rationale, and that's part of the reason we were there. Because there is a certain argument, but what's so disturbing is just the the inability to make headway. Versus when I've spoken at Wisconsin before other places, I felt like, well, I really can make headway because the person is ultimately interested in you know, having a better life for themselves and their family, and you know, in general, the world being a better place. Whereas here, that just was not on the table. It wasn't. It was not an expressed interest. The interest was just this pipeline is evil. Fossil fuels are evil. Nuclear is evil. And just one final thought on this is that with the air travel thing, I mean, air travel is such is such a, a marvelous thing. This is how most of us even even got there. There's no way that Thomas and Aaron could have gotten there. There's no way that I. It would have been at all economical for me to go without air travel. Of course, the, the same, you know, of course, oil, crude oil is the basis of both jet fuel and gasoline. So logically, gasoline shouldn't be allowed. It's just, I mean, air travel is such a magnificent thing, such a source of joy. I mean, if you're going on a honeymoon, it's what allows you to go anywhere in the world. You can travel. You can, you can move easily, you know, unlike many of our great-grandparents who came over on steamships, and even these guys want to ban steamships. So back to the Nina, the Pinta, uh, and the Santa Maria, you know, those kinds of fatality rates. The idea of giving up airplanes is so abominable that if you thought it was necessary, you should be tearful, and I mean this literally, tearful while talking about that prospect, that, that there's such a tragedy that our means of, of accomplishing this wonderful thing is it has this fatal flaw that we don't know how to fix. But just to talk cavalierly about, and McKibben does this in his book, Earth, like, well, in the future, we're not really going to be able to fly. I mean, that is, is such a, I mean, such a lack of a love for human life to just look at, look at something like flight and know everything that's done for people and, all, and what an opportunity that is and to say, yeah, 
who cares? Um, so let's see. Anything? All right. Well, I just each of you, um, Thomas. Any any closing thoughts you have about the the blackout rally or your your whole adventure? Yeah. So one one of the common denominators that I sort of thought was that the issue of a lot of these people's thought processes was just lack of knowledge on the issue. Like, there is so much wonderful information, books, and even just on the Internet, that if they were to read anything on some of these issues, they perhaps would even have a different opinion of things because it's so accessible these days and thanks to nuclear power and fossil fuels for that accessibility. But um, it, was, it was definitely an interesting experience to look in the faces and talk to the people that are trying to tear down industrial civilization. All right. What about you, Aaron? I guess um, my last thought would be on what you were discussing, the video that came out about um, Exxon hating your children. And I just, um, I guess it's definitely, at least I would say, like a majority of these people are from the East Coast, and it's no longer like a major refining area. So running into people from, who work in the oil um, business or who happen to work in refinery is not something that many of them have done. And so I think that it, I thought it was unfortunate that even after um, even meeting me or meeting anyone else who had experience they would still have this viewpoint that someone within this large company or all of them, you know, are out to really harm not only like yourself but your children when in you know, in reality everyone from the operators up to upper management is trying to do their best job to make it um more to make it easier for you and your children to have access to, you know, plentiful or the ability to fly for cheaper. So I guess I would really just question people who obviously have that motive. It's not well thought out at all. And there are not millions of individuals who work in the refining business out to hurt small children. So that's what was really striking, I guess. Yeah, and I think that the fact that they think that, but even the fact that the culture thinks that, the latter is more disturbing because... I knew to some extent, although not the extent that I experienced, that the people in this rally would be, to put it charitably, below average in terms of intellectual inquisitiveness and openness to new views on energy and environmental issues. I mean, there's a reason why they went to this event and spent a lot of time screaming and and whatnot. And, and there's a move. It's a movement in a in a very cultish way and that, that doesn't want any dissent, that doesn't really educate people, that, but that gives them all of these, these talking points. But it is disturbing with that movie that a culture, a culture will tolerate that. I mean, what if it said, Jews hate your children? Because there was a time in history when that was an appropriate thing to say. And because environmentalism is a dominant ideology, it's, it's that industrial concerns are just this fundamentally evil force in the world. And it's important to know that real human beings, not even very long ago, massacred millions of people in the name of uh, 
you know, in an ideology where there, certain people needed to be gotten out of the way. Now, with environmentalism, it's in essence everyone needs to be gotten out of the way. And what that means in practice is that the first people to be gotten out of the way will be the poorer, you know, the poorer people in the undeveloped country where it's, there's not as much you need to, to destroy to make them completely destitute or where they are completely destitute. And already um, that movement has literally killed millions of people through its actions uh, with DDT, which is uh, you know, the life-saving compound that uh, was the key to, has been the key to eradicating malaria, yellow fever, um, that plus some other things has been the key in the West to eradicating those when those were used to be uh, common diseases. And it's a hard lesson for any generation to learn, especially when it's a generation living in relative peace, that it is well within human possibility for very, very, very bad things to happen when you have mass movements based on false ideas, um, false anti-life ideas that we don't fight back against. And that's why we did Light Brigade. We wanted to fight back and we wanted to, to show what our views are, how we think about these issues, what our ideals are, versus what are the ideals of the people who are making uh, a lot of noise and who are, represent, who are representing themselves as the idealists. And I hope you see from the video that it is Center for Industrial Progress and the advocates of energy growth and industrial progress and freedom and the pursuit of happiness that are the real idealists. So with that, our hour is up. Uh, I want to thank our guests, Eric Dennis, Thomas Iden, Aaron Connors. And we will be back next week with another great show, another great topic, another great guest. If you need to contact me for any reasons, questions, comments, comments love mail, hate mail, you can reach me at alex at industrialprogress.net. So until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.